Imagine how dark it must have been the night Nicodemus went to see Jesus. 1900 years before electric lights, no street lamps, only an oil lamp to light your way. If you've camped far from the city lights with only maybe a lantern to light the way if you have to go to the bathroom, you know how dark it can get. The darkness outside must have mirrored the darkness inside of Nicodemus, but not darkness as in evil, darkness as in confusion, as in lack of clarity and incomprehension. And we can surely understand Nicodemus's confusion. In John 2, Jesus does something extraordinary, maybe even a little crazy. He overturns the money changers' tables and drives the animals from the temple with a whip. When asked to show a sign as proof of divine approval, Jesus said something that, that must have sounded really crazy to people. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now John is quick to tell us that he was speaking of the temple of his body, but I doubt that that was obvious to a lot of folks at the time. But Jesus doesn't seem crazy to Nicodemus. He may know about the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. He certainly knows that Jesus spoke and acted with authority at the temple. So he decides to see Jesus. Only poor Nicodemus is a man with a lot to lose. He has power. He has prestige. I think of, think of the most respected statesman or pastor, someone with a pension and tenure that you can think of. That's what Nicodemus was like. That was the position that he had. When he spoke, people listened. If, work of, if word of his meeting with Jesus should leak, the damage to his reputation might be considerable. So he goes at night. Because Nicodemus meets Jesus at night, night language is what he gets from Jesus. A lot of what Jesus says doesn't make sense to Nicodemus. Jesus speaks of being born from above, or as other translations have it, born again. Both are right, by the way. He speaks about the Spirit moving where it will, blowing like the wind. He speaks about the Son of Man being lifted up for the life of the world, sent by the Father out of nothing but sheer love. All of this is difficult, very difficult for poor Nicodemus to understand. What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? What does it mean to be born again or born from above? In what way will the Son of Man be lifted up? What does Jesus mean by eternal life? It's kind of like trying to understand the Trinity. We've all heard analogies for the Trinity. If you have time, go on YouTube and watch St. Patrick's Bad Analogies on YouTube and apologies in advance for the terrible Irish accents in that video. But we've all heard these analogies for the Trinity. Water as a solid, liquid, and gas, uh, the tri-corner hat, the shamrock, there are others out there. You, maybe those weird interlocking circles we've seen, you've seen. The problem with all of these analogies is that they're not terribly helpful, nor are they inspiring. 
Who, after all, would worship a deity who is reducible in understanding to a tricorner hat? Our imperfect, finite reason can only take us so far in understanding a perfect, infinite God. So Jesus doesn't parse doctrine with Nicodemus. Instead, Jesus invites Nicodemus and us into the Trinitarian life. God in God's own being, in God's own self, is perfect unity. God's oneness is emphasized in Scripture time and time again from the very first verse of Genesis. Yet this unity is not uniformity. God's unity is demonstrated by God's own diversity. God's own self is the perfect community of love in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we are claimed by God in baptism, we are invited to share in the same community of love that God has within God's self. We're invited to live in a community unified in its own diversity. In our lonely sectarian age, we need this community, this community of love more than ever. Think of what's happened in this country. We've been divided into tribes that seek ever-increasing uniformity of thought based on specific doctrines. Surely you've noticed the hardness, the unforgiveness, the eagerness to cancel anyone who disagrees with the doctrine of the tribe, whether left or right. This isn't arguing moral equivalence. This is just stating a fact. We've been divided into these tribes that have doctrines. And woe be unto ye who transgress. Political tribes demand complete fealty and total obedience, not rooted in love, but in being right, in winning. Diversity is thus destroyed, replaced by dueling uniformities. The vision of God's community is radically different from this. Jesus doesn't demand uniformity of thought. Jesus doesn't demand fealty to certain doctrines. Jesus does insist that we trust him as the Son of God sent by the Father into the world. Jesus insists that we trust him as the one sent to redeem the world. Jesus does insist that we recognize the Spirit of God moving in the world to birth children of God like ourselves. But Jesus doesn't threaten to cancel anyone. In verse 17, he says as much, God didn't send the Son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Such a trust, such a faith in Jesus as the one sent into the world to save it overturns all our previous allegiances, all our previous doctrines, all our tribalism. In the Trinitarian life, the life of love among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're finally freed to become who we were meant to be. We're finally liberated from our loneliness, from our confusion, from our unforgiveness, from our need to be right at any cost. This liberation happened for Nicodemus. Slowly, 
but surely over the course of John's gospel. We see Nicodemus twice more. He appears as the lone dissenting voice among the Sanhedrin in, in John chapter 9. He says, when the council is so eager to condemn Jesus for straying beyond the doctrine, surely we don't condemn anyone without a, without a fair hearing, do we? And then in chapter 19, after Jesus is killed, he assists Joseph of Arimathea in burying Jesus in this act of mercy when he brings a costly assortment of spices. Nicodemus was never an outspoken disciple. He was probably on the fence for much of the gospel. But it seems he recognized Jesus in the end for who he said he was. The Son of God who came into the world out of nothing but love. So here it is. The Trinity is not first understood, certainly not by our own reason. The Trinity is first lived. The triune God is a reality that is lived into faith, a reality that God's Spirit calls us to in the first place. The Trinitarian life is about being part of a community of love, not part of a community of being right. Part of a community of love, not part of a community of being right. The Trinitarian life is about becoming who God made us to be, not what others think we should be. Only when we live the Trinitarian life in faith, by God's call, can we begin to understand the triune God. Faith always precedes understanding. So let's live that life rooted in God's love for the world. Thanks be to God.